We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Baseball's Most Baffling MVP Ballots, the publisher, McFarland, the author, Jeremy Lerman. Please join me as we welcome Jeremy Lerman to the clubhouse. Thank you uh, so much for that, and, and thank you so much for having me, Jay. Uh, it, it really is uh, an honor, uh, con especially considering the, the powerhouse lineup of writers and, and uh, sports figures that you've had here. Uh, it, I'm deeply appreciative of you uh, having me. Uh, well, it, it's a pleasure, and you fit right into that powerhouse lineup, so, so don't worry. Uh, you deserve, I'll try, you deserve to, the... I'll try to get over the Mendoza line. <laughs> <laughs> He probably did not get in this book. He was not. Uh, yeah. He was not close to being <laughs> MVP. <no. He> <laughs> uh, and just quickly, a, a one-liner about Jeremy. There's a lot more, but just a one-liner. Uh, Jeremy Lerman is the founding editor of PlateCoverage.com, and has been a professional speechwriter, copywriter, and ghostwriter for 20 years. And we spoke about this a little bit before, but uh, you don't need to get into so much as far as the. the McFarlane and the publisher directly, but just in general, how did this particular book project come about? That's a good way to get us going. Sure. Um, so I've, like everyone in this room, been a lifelong baseball fan. Um, and had always, like I think a lot of fans, had an interest in the annual awards uh, for no other reason than it gave us something to argue about every year. And you, and you had this rooting interest in, in, in whether your guy, and in, in my case, and I see a Yankee cap in the back, you know, my guy was Don Mattingly, for example, in the mid-'80s. And, you know, you just couldn't wait to see, to, to, to read about the reveal, so to speak, of, of these awards. You couldn't wait to argue about it with your friends, and particularly with Mattingly, it was the, the great Mattingly-Clemens debate. And I think that was the first MVP debate that really kind of locked me into this uh, crazy kind of conversation that, that takes place every season. Um, so fast forward now, you know, 20 or 30 years, um, and the debate has grown from the bar stools and the kitchen tables to this annual kind of protracted national conversation um, and obviously fueled by the internet and obviously fueled by things like ESPN. So the annual MVP award uh, has become this kind of weeks long if not months long kind of uh, well argument as Joe Piznanski the great uh, sports columnist uh, is told me uh, in the course of writing the book gives us something to argue about. Um, so you asked about how, how the project came about. So. I had been, as you said, a speechwriter for a long time, and, and I'm used to, uh, actually, I'm much more comfortable being behind the curtain as opposed to in front of the audience. Um, and coinciding with my, my writing was this really deep-seated interest and passion for baseball. It, it was, uh, has always been my favorite diversion, and as you kind of let off a little earlier, or maybe it was before we started taping, um, it's my favorite diversion, and I think no matter where you kind of land on, on the, the recent election results, it's a nice diversion to have for an hour. So sorry for that segue, Jeff. Um, <laughs> it's funny to address the elephant in the room. So, so the book came about this way. I was looking for a topic to write a baseball book. And this topic has just fascinated me. And like so many other folks who are in the room, I would uh, read all of these blogs and these articles online about the worst MVPs uh, in history, and they were usually kind of these lists that had a little blurb about, well, Ted Williams was robbed this year, and Willie Mays was robbed that year. Um, and I kept seeing the same names over and over again. And I thought, well, is that right? I mean, let me do a little research on that. Was Willie Mays really robbed, you know, 38 times for the MVP? I'm not <laughs> sure that's, that's right. And I started doing the research, and I started getting into the source material and, and finding that things weren't always as they seemed. And it wasn't just, it wasn't as easy as, well, player X was worth 10 wins above replacement and player Y was worth six wins above replacement, so therefore player X should have won the MVP. There were other things going on. And it was these other things, by the way, these kind of tangents and, and uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, these, these, these 
interesting kind of stories behind these awards uh, and behind the votes especially uh, that piqued my interest. So that's how the book came about. We, I just started writing and looking at the worst or most controversial votes of all time and narrowed it down to 15 or 20 of them and took it from there. Well, I just want to read about a sentence or so from sure. your introduction because I think it, it really sums up what, part, what really makes this interesting, that the book that you wrote, uh, which, and this is what you wrote, which brings us to the aim of this book. These quote-unquote scandalous MVP votes deserve to be revisited and reconstructed and at times defended or further vilified because they tell us so much about the game and its times. And what you really did a terrific job with, and it was, well, first of all, you wrote it in a very, uh, uh, I need uh, Andy, the editor here, for the right word, but <laughs> I, I, I was going to say entertaining way, but I'm, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but just, it, it was a very easy read and fun read. You didn't get bogged down in uh, saber metrics uh, with no writing ability. Uh, uh, well, th thank you so uh, much for saying so. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I do appreciate that. I've, I've been told uh, there was a review, one of the reviews on uh, Amazon, for what it's worth, <laughs> described it as conversational, as a conversational right, That's a better so word. May, maybe that's All the right, word. We'll steal that uh, word. No, that's fine, and it, and it works for me. Um, and the book is, look, if you're into statistics, if you, and I'm not trying to sell the room or anything like that, but if, if you're into statistics and you're into numbers and you're into data, there's plenty of it in here. Um, but the intent was that it's supposed to actually support the story. It's not the story. The story are the personalities, and, and which in involves and includes, by the way, the writers as well, the people who are voting on the awards, as well as the players. Um, so hopefully there's something in there for, for every baseball fan, whether you're more interested in the stats, okay, you've got them, um, but if you're interested in kind of uh, the context, um, hopefully you'll get something out of it as well. Absolutely, and what I found so interesting is when you, when you say the game and its times, you, you really understand the history of, of uh, you take us through the history of baseball in a way uh, because it's, it's the MVP, what people uh, thought was valuable has, has changed throughout the course of the game, uh, let alone guys who may have gotten snubbed for other reasons. But it, it's, it's what people viewed as valuable at that moment in the game, which is not the same now as it was 20 years ago, and it's not the same in 20 years from now. And, uh, that, you, know, and that, that you did a great job with that. Th thanks so much for, for, for the kind words. Um, and you know, you, you, you kind of touched on, on, on the thought process. Um, you really nailed it, because the MVP award for me was always a framing device for what was going on. And to your point, so one of the early chapters was about a guy, well, the Cubs just won the World Series, so this is appropriate. Second baseman, John Evers, who was more famous for the, the famous Tinker to Evers to Chance line in, in, that, in that poem. Um, but he was also a borderline psychotic in some ways <laughs> um, on the field. Um, and John Evers was, was he, he earned or was named, a, a, you know, a, the 1914 NL MVP or the version of the MVP award that existed at the time. And it struck me you look at his, his stat line, and this is during the dead ball era, so obviously hitting was suppressed to a great degree. But you look at his statistics and you say, wait, how, how did this guy win the MVP? Um, even by the standards of the day, how, how is he, he's got one home run, he drove in I think 40 runs that year. Uh, what's going on? And, 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 and he was a name that would come up on these worst MVP lists that you see uh, sometimes online, you know, in the baseball blogs. Did a little research. And then it started to reveal itself. Why did John Evers, why was he named MVP? Why was this, by the way, when I say borderline psychotic, he really was, um, this is my favorite chapter of the book to write because of the research. Uh, going back and reading the source material from, from the 19 aughts, um, and you just read over and over again. This guy was 5'9", he weighed 125 pounds. He would go to bed every night eating candy, chocolate bars, to try to keep weight on over the course of the season, okay? He had a Napoleon complex, to say the least. He picked a fight, not just with opposing players and coaches, um, not just with his own teammates, but with umpires. And not 
not pointing his finger in their chest and kicking dirt and doing the Billy Martin thing. He picked fights with umpires. He threw punches, and they punched him back. Um, so John Evers had this pathological need to win, and it was this need to win, this will to win that this guy had uh, that propelled him to the MVP that year, because what was he really good at? Well, he wasn't ever going to hit for power. Okay? Uh, he played on this powerhouse team, however. What, well, he was the smartest guy on the field. He was one of, if not the best glove men of his day. Uh, he could bunt with the best of them. He was a manager on the field. Um, and it was his entire body of work, and, and it was a, a body of work that was, had much greater value back in 1914 than it ever would today when teams are waiting for the three-run home run and, and strikeout home run, strikeout home run. That's the game we, we're watching today. Well, back then it was a much more, uh, there was an artistry, I think, attendant to the game, and, and John Evers that year was an artist. Um, and it was less about the one home run that he hit and the, you know, the, <coughs> meager and modest batting statistics and much more about what he brought. And he, he brought genuine value, which today might, might be overlooked in, in our, in our data-driven kind of approach to the game. So, Well, jumping, uh, let, staying, uh, let's say, chronologically. So I, I want to uh, touch on a certain year sure. in one of your chapters. Uh, the year is 1926. And mm. we'll get to the, to the punchline, so to speak, and you can explain. But I just want to lay it out just briefly, and I don't want to get into massive statistics here, but uh, Babe Ruth that year, just to put some of this in context, Babe Ruth hit 47 home runs that year. Uh, Al Simmons was second. He hit 19 home runs. Uh, Ruth led the league with 153 RBI. Tony Lazari was second. He had 117 on and on, and it pretty much let, lets you know that this guy was beyond, it, it, it's pretty he good. was in his own world. He was pretty good. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then you write, to match Babe Ruth's production in 1926, you would need to combine the second best player in the league with a major league all-star. Babe Ruth did not win the MVP award that year. So that's the punchline. Babe Ruth did not win the MVP that year. And Babe Ruth, despite being the best player in baseball, oh, it, it, at least a dozen times. And he wasn't the best player by a, a, a little bit. He was the best player by a lap. He lapped the field a dozen times. Won one MVP, and as some of the folks in, in, in the room might know, it was because of the rules of the time. Um, the American League reintroduced its version of the MVP in 1922, uh, forgive me. Um, and they it never really took off because of these pretty silly rules that they attached to the MVP at the time. And one of them was, if you were named MVP once, you were never eligible to win the award again. So Babe Ruth won the MVP, he was named MVP in 1923. He had one of his best seasons, and I, I don't have his statistics at the, at the tips of my fingers, but he hit 390-something, and he led the league in basically every category you could lead, except batting, by the way. He lost the batting title to Harry Heilman, who had 403 that year. And that was it for Babe Ruth. Um, by the way, another there's a there's a uh, it's probably apocryphal story. I don't know if it's true or not, but but I came across this in the research. So in 1922, when they when the American League came out with their version of the MVP, uh, Ban Johnson, the AL president, he had this grand vision for the MVP, and he went to the owners' meetings in the, uh, in the winter of 1922 before the season started with two proposals for this new award, this new most valuable player award. The first proposal, which I thought would be kind of cool was that they, the player would have a bust or a, a, a plaque of himself hung in the Smithsonian Institute, okay? So this would be kind of like, almost like a, a mini hall of fame. And then the second proposal, which was much grander, was that they were going to build a monument to baseball in Potomac Park. So, you know, there's the Lincoln Monument, the Jefferson Memorial, and then this monument to baseball. Well, the owners uh, went with a little bit more modest approach. The, the winner of MVP, they got a button. <laughs> and, and, and here's where Babe Ruth comes in. So, uh, and I'm putting words in Babe's mouth, but, but uh, so Babe Ruth, 1923, he's named MVP and he gets his button and he says, what the hell is this? <laughs> he said, where's my check? And they said, well, you got a button. And he said, you could at least give me a piece of paper that says I won the MVP. So afterwards, they 
decided that along with the button came a certificate that said you were named the most valuable player in, in the... Another reason why, why the award really never took off as well is, it, you know, didn't generate headlines. The National League, though, they did it a little differently. They did not have these onerous and silly rules that the American League had. Um, and they also gave a $1,000... Well, it was actually a bag of gold coins. They gave $1,000 worth of gold to the winner of the MVP. Um, and players were el eligible to win as many times as they wanted, and player managers were el eligible to win in the National League. They weren't in the American League. So the award, they kind of shot themselves in the foot. Um, and Babe Ruth is the most glaring example of that. The, the best player, really by any, any objective or subjective measure, whoever, whoever played the game, has one MVP to his credit. Um, but he's, people still recognize him as pretty good. <laughs> and the winner that year, so in the American League, this guy, a guy by the name, I believe it was uh, George Burns, right? right? Um, easy name to remember in a sense. Um, and he was a fine player. He was, you know, he had a, a, a decent year. Um, but he was literally half the player that Babe Ruth was. Um, the national, and, and, and there's a line in that chapter at the end, Babe Ruth was so good, he won other players MVP. Because in, in 1926, in the National League, a guy by the name of Bob O'Farrell was a catcher for St. Louis. He was named MVP. He's probably the most anonymous MVP winner that there is. Uh, I had never heard of him before writing the book. Bob O'Farrell, catcher for St. Louis, had the most modest batting statistics you can imagine, and, and, and they're in the book. Um, and you say, how did this guy win the MVP? Well, it's a famous story, which I am sure that uh, most of the folks who are here tonight know, but it's the famous Grover Cleveland Alexander, Tony Lazieri duel the World Series, and, and I'm not ruining this for anybody. <laughs> uh, uh, Alexander ambles into the bullpen in the seventh inning, and he's got the bases loaded, or men on base, and Tony Lazieri, the, the young Yankee slugger, rookie second baseman, who was a fantastic hitter. Lazieri the night before, uh, sorry, Alexander the night before, as legend have it, uh, may have had one too many. Um, he was celebrating his victory that day when he was pitching in game six. Comes in the game seven, he strikes out Lazieri to preserve the Cardinal lead. We fast forward now to the ninth inning. Now remember, Alexander's still on the mound. His catcher is Bob O'Farrell. Babe Ruth leads off the inning, or, or it, it, whether he let, I don't actually remember, but they walk Babe Ruth, put him on base. There's two outs, so Babe Ruth didn't lead off the inning because there were two outs. Walk Babe Ruth, and Alexander's getting ready to face Bob Musel, and Ruth takes off. Babe Ruth takes off. It's not Ricky Henderson, but this isn't, you know. A, he takes off to everyone's shock, including his manager. And Bob O'Farrell nails him by 15 feet at second base because it's Babe Ruth running. He wasn't really known for his fleet, fleetness of foot. Well, the Cardinals win the World Series. Bob O'Farrell is then shortly named, thereafter named MVP of the entire National League. Now, you say, well, what does one have to do with the other? Well, what had happened in those days, the MVP was actually voted on after the conclusion of the World Series. And the reason that this was in place was that in 1925, they announced the MVP prior to the World Series. And it was a guy by the name of Roger Peckinpah for the Washington Senators. And he was a terrible, terrible selection for MVP, and he also had the most brutal World Series anybody's ever had. He committed eight errors in seven games. That's a shortstop. Eight errors. This poor guy. Well, they said, you know, maybe it was nerves. It wasn't nerves. The guy was playing basically on one leg. It was Bill Buckner at shortstop. But they said, well, maybe it was nerves. I mean, we, we announced him as MVP, and now the world's looking at him, and, and that's not really fair to him, so we're not going to do it anymore. We're going we're to save it for after the World Series. Well, they didn't it wasn't just the announcement, it was the vote. The vote took place after the World Series. So you say, well, wait a minute, Bob O'Farrell, they're not going to give him the, the MVP just because of, he had a, a good World Series. And it wasn't just the Ruth play. He, he did have a, a really good World Series. Um, but newspaper accounts actually suggest something otherwise. It was after game five when some of the uh, accounts of the day said, you know, O'Farrell is having a, a, a fantastic series, and this just about probably wraps up the MVP for this guy. Um, so they were kind of leading the jury a little bit. Um, so Babe Ruth, so good, he wins other pl players' MVP. And really, that was the, there was no other rational explanation for this guy winning the award, none. If you take a look at his statistics for 1926, 
uh, kind of absurd that he was even in the conversation. So, well, uh, moving ahead sure. a couple decades, you have a chapter which is very interesting, uh, and we there's a lot of depth in here. We can just touch on it. The, the The title is "Sticking It to the Splinter: Most Career MVP Snubs," and you have a sentence in there: three great players who were routinely victimized by the voting: Ted Williams. Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays. Just to touch on that a little bit. Sure. Well, uh, so the most snubbed player of all time is was was. Uh, this is something that people love to argue about. Baseball fans love to argue about. And that Mike Trout, contemporary player, um, I think a lot of folks may think that he's going to join this list if he hasn't already. Um, I don't know if I agree with that, but we can get into that in a bit. But so. The, the idea of this chapter came about because it, it, Willie Mays, uh, like Babe Ruth, was the best player in baseball for at least 15 years. Uh, you know, it, well, let's call it at least a dozen years. He was the best player in baseball. He's no worse than the second or third greatest player who ever lived, in, uh, at least in my opinion. Um, and he has two awards, two MVPs. One came in 1954, and the other one, if I remember correctly, it was 1965. Um, holds the record for longest span between awards, as a matter of fact. So Willie Mays was really good for a really long time. And every year, he'd watch other guys win the MVP. Um, and he routinely makes the list of worst MVP decisions of all time. Uh, the, the 1960 vote with Dick Grote, for example, is always up there. Dick Grote, pirate shortstop, was named MVP over Willie Mays, who was just heads and shoulders uh, better than anybody else. So I started looking at the data, and I started looking at the year-by-year -year accounting of things, and, I, and it, I said, well, I don't know, maybe I can understand how Willie maybe didn't win an award this year. I mean, you know, Hank Aaron's no slouch. It's no shame in losing to Frank Robinson. And I said, well, we're going to put that aside. So Willie's certainly been snubbed, but let's take a look at a couple other guys. Ted Williams also has two MVP awards. Ted Williams was the best hitter in baseball at least a dozen times. Um, even with his war service, um, he won two MVPs. Um, gee, he feels like Ted Williams should have won more than two. And then finally, Mickey Mantle, who was the most honored of the trio. He won three MVPs. Um, Mickey Mantle is one of these guys where he is, uh, he's an immortal. He's, I think by most measures, one of the 20 best players who ever, who ever lived. And he's underrated. He's underrated. And I think for the most part, it's because People compare him to Willie Mays. I think that's why he maybe doesn't get his due. Mickey Mantle won three MVPs, but the data showed that he probably should have won six or seven. Um, so I started thinking, well, okay, of all these snubs, which is the worst of it? And the title of the chapter is Sticking It to the Splinter, and it really was Ted Williams. Ted Williams got the shaft worse than anybody else. Um, it was 1947. And I need a second to collect my thoughts. I'm still angry at this one. <laughs> um, 1947, Ted Williams captures the Triple Crown, his second Triple Crown. Second time, by the way, he captured the Triple Crown and was denied the MVP. It also happened in 1942. 1947, Ted Williams captures the Triple Crown. He also leads the league and runs and, and okay, just whatever was important, Ted Williams led the league. Ted Williams received three first place votes for MVP. Now he lost, by the way, to Joe DiMaggio, 203 voting points to 202. At that time, and still the closest MVP vote in history, Ted Williams received three votes. A guy by the name of Eddie Juiced, no one's ever heard of Eddie Juiced unless you're a hardcore baseball fan. It's a shortstop, I believe for St. Louis. I'd have to look this one up. I apologize for it. You'd think I would remember this one. Eddie Juiced hit 206 in 1947. Eddie Juice led the league in strikeouts. He also led the league in errors for a shortstop. Eddie Juice received two first place MVP votes. Ted Williams, who won the Triple Crown, received three. Give you an idea of what was going on in 1947. Now the winner, the MVP in 1947, was Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio had, for DiMaggio, a subpar season. Still one of the better players in the league, but nothing to write home about. Joe DiMaggio received eight, I believe, first place votes. He was named MVP. Now, this was a, uh, as I wrote in the book, 
this was a slight and a snub. This was a bitter pill that stuck in William's throat for decades because it was revealed that one writer had left him completely off the ballot. There was a writer who decided Ted Williams was not one of the 10 best players in the American League that year, when Ted Williams was far and away the best player in the American League that year. And it got back to Williams. He always thought it was a, a Boston writer by the name, I believe, Mel Webb. Turns out that it wasn't this Boston writer. It was another writer. Um, but Williams was despised by the press corps. Um, there was a mutual antipathy going on there. He treated them very poorly, and you know they treated him pretty poorly when it came to MVP voting. And to me, it stands uh, among the very worst of all time because it was just a clear case of voter spite that denied Ted you know, his rightful MVP. Um, Mickey Mantle never re got a personal snub in that regard. It was more just that, that the voters at the time, the, what, what they valued was just kind of hard to put your thumb on. Um, Mickey Mantle, 1955, was, uh, led the league in pretty much you know, most important categories. Yogi Berra was named MVP. It was half the player Mantle was, but back in the 50s, uh, the writers valued catchers in a way that you just don't see anymore. Um, probably, by the way, correctly. They, they valued them correctly as opposed to today where I think um, catchers and second basemen and middle infielders maybe don't get the respect that they deserve when it comes to the all-around game. Um, so Berra won over Mickey Mantle, a, a kind of a minor snub. Mantle, of course, wins in 56 and 57. He follows up his triple crown in 56 with a, with a year in 57 that was arguably as good, if not better. Um, 58, he's again the best player in the, in the league by most measures, um, and he, he, he loses, I believe, to Jackie Jensen. Um, so now we've got two cases where Mantle clearly should have won. And then, of course, 1961, Roger Maris. Well, look, the guy set the most glamorous record in, in sports, so he was named MVP. Mantle was the far superior player, just happened to hit seven less home runs. So it cost him an MVP. Um, so if you're keeping score, Mantle snubbed three times. Williams, we didn't touch on some of the other snubs, but, but he was snubbed three times. And then we get to back to Willie Mays. And I'm thinking, well, okay, Willie Mays, we're looking at 10 snubs. We're looking at this guy has been, he's gotten the shaft. He's, he's Willie Mays, don't, he's, he's okay, he's sleeping fine. But really, the voters did him a disservice. Well, as alluded to before, eh, not really sure. Could he have won four MVPs? Sure, he could have. Um, but again, he was losing to guys like Sandy Koufax, Ernie Banks, the, 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 the best players in, by the way, the greatest assemblage of talent probably of the 20th century. Um, so Willie Mays, I would put him last on the list of, of these three. I would probably say that Williams was the most snubbed player of all time, followed by Mantle, followed by Mays and maybe Trout uh, in a couple of years is gonna join that list. Well, I have some other questions, but I don't wanna snub the, uh, the great crowd that we have, so no, does anyone we... uh, wanna lead off? Yes, you talk about snubbing, mm. and one comes to mind with the 95 season of American League, Albert Bell. Great example. And Mo Bourne. Yeah. Mo Bourne won over Albert Bell. Yeah. Albert Bell's statistics, but I'm wondering if that was spiked because Albert Bell did not get along with the press. So it was, well, I didn't talk to the writer, so, so in, in case we, we couldn't hear, the, 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 uh, the question was about the 1995 MVP race where, where uh, Albert Bell lost to Mo Vaughn, um, and Bell was the, had the vastly superior year. He was, he was better in every way except disposition. <laughs> um, and, and Mo Vaughn even alluded to this, so, so Vaughn was surprised. Now, they tied for the league leading in RBI, but, but uh, Bell was just far and away. He was a wrecking ball. He was the that was the year he hit 50 home runs and also hit 50 doubles. And only it player to, it wasn't a full season either. 145 game season and he's the only player in history to ever do it. Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth, never did it. And uh, he lost to, to Mo Vaughn and Vaughn when he's accepting the award and I'm paraphrasing said it, it just goes to show being nice counts or being nice matters. So uh, yeah it's a great example. So then he chased the kids off yeah, and then, and, then, and then he took a bat and he probably went on a rampage in his neighborhood and you know, broke some mailboxes and stuff like that. So I read the book, really enjoyed it. I uh, thank you. People, people, fans. Thanks. Uh, but one thing you don't address in any measure I, I didn't pick up is exactly what the award is supposed to be. Baseball has always left it open. Yes. So you can vote for whatever you want. No one's really making a bad vote because there's no 
-hmm. There's no code as to what you're supposed to vote for. And you even described it once where uh, somebody decided that pitchers were never going to get an MVP, and they could have thrown him off the list, but they didn't, so he got another decision. Oh boy, there's so much in what you just said. So much to unpack. <laughs> I, I uh, obviously, uh, you know, we're we're doing uh, the uh, we're doing a podcast here, so people couldn't see me nodding as the gentleman was was describing. Um, if if it didn't pick up on the mic, basically we talked about a couple of things. But one is what the definition of value. What 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 the hell do we actually mean when we talk about value? And uh, it is open ended. The actual ballot says. There is no clear-cut definition of value. I mean, imagine they say, we want you to vote on the most valuable player. Um, but we're not going to tell you what value actually means. And it, it, and it has led to all of these wonderful arguments. Um, I uh, wish that I, I knew, um, as a friend said to me, I, I might be the leading expert on the least important topic in the world. <laughs> and I, I, I can tell you that the definition of value changes certainly over the, over the decades, but even year by year. Um, and now with advanced analysis and, and the fact that, that uh, you know, data is really driving the game and you know, the wins above replacement is kind of the ubiquitous stat, um, the awards are, well, I guess if you're, if you're a Sabre metrics person and, you're re and, and, you, and you, you, know, you enjoy that sort of thing, which I do, um, you're thinking, well, the voting's getting a little better because now the best players really are getting it. But then that presupposes, well, does best actually mean most valuable? And I think it makes it more interesting not to kind of have a, a, a clear definition, um, or else you just, again, you give it to Mike Trout every year. Um, but you're right, it's, it's, uh, it's something that will vex <laughs> all of us fans and, and the writers too, I'm, I'm guessing, the voters too. So thanks for the question. Uh, the Yankees, Jack, in the front row. Well, actually, I had a question. I wanted to get your input. Um, so what do you think of the fact that there were never any Colorado Rockies that won the MVP? And all throughout the 90s, you had guys like Larry Walker, Andres Gallagher, I think about 390 for one year. And I think the reason was that they felt that they had an advantage playing Colorado with balls was on bat. But yet, the, the kind of irony was that Barry Bonds won the Naples MVP that year. And now, we know, allegedly, Oh, we're, he, we're getting into it now. Yeah, yeah now we're... <laughs> so, the, so there was one MVP, but you're right. The Rockies were... Walker did actually win it in 97 NL. And, and he won it because he had just a year that was so remarkable that, that the writers even said, well, geez, even with Coors Field, my God, look what this guy did, right? But you're right. Well, and it, and it, it, the Rockies were passed over. A couple times, one, they were a bad team for a lot of that time, right? And... and Unfortunately, or fortunately, team record has a lot to do with, with the voting. Um, something like 97% of, of MVPs came from winning teams, and, and 83 or 84% something that come from playoff teams. So that had a lot to do with it. But also, look, it was a crazy place to play. You know, the, the, the statistics were just so inflated. Um, but you also touched on the you know, what, what I call the Selig era, but other people call the, the steroid era. Um, <laughs> he's not commissioner anymore, so I'm okay, right? I don't know, but, uh, um, and I, I didn't touch on that at all in the book um, because the, the truth is, I, well, one, I don't really care that much about it because I truly believe that, that uh, we will never know the full extent of it. Um, but if you told me that half the players are doing it, I would, I would buy it, right? So. Oh, perfect. Roger Clemens pitched against Barry Bonds at Yankee Stadium. Well, he's got, you know, the best pitcher of his generation, the best hitter of his generation, and they're both juiced to the gills. So who has the advantage there, right? I mean, it's... it's uh, I think we touched on a little bit before. We were talking about um, Jason Giambi. His brother was also using passes. He wasn't very good. So yeah, yeah, so J Jason and Jeremy really beat Giambi. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, um, so I think that's why the Rockies were, were kind of passed over for sure. Even more recently, you know, uh, Arenado, their spectacular third right. baseman, right? He's, he's a wonderful, wonderful player. Um, but he didn't make the, I don't believe he made the top three finalists uh, this year. Um, certainly had the numbers for it. So I, but I still think that the Coors Field or whatever they're calling it these days, the Colorado effect, the bias is still there. Yeah. Uh, I, you, sir. <laughs> and we'll get, we'll get to everyone. Earlier, Jay was mentioning years. Do you think, and I'm thinking of the 1950 NL MVP. I don't know if oh, it's in the book. It is. With Jim Constance yeah. winning it. 
but he's not even the best, arguably wasn't even the best player on the Phillies. You had Richie Ashton, you had Del Hines, you had uh, Sisler, you had um, Robin Roberts anchoring the staff. And do you really think it was, and you mentioned it with Brody and Sisti, he wasn't the best player on the Pirates. That was Clemente probably by far. Do you think it was, especially for the voters back in the 50s, and you mentioned it, okay, he's a really good player on a pennant winning team, let's just give him the MVP. Especially, I think that it, so you so that uh, so th there is a chapter devoted to the 1950 vote and it was one of my favorite uh, chapters to write in the sense because of the story I think that was a storyline MVP and what I mean by that is the writers love a narrative they love a good story and uh, you mentioned Robin Roberts and I'm so glad you did um, so Jim Constanti if, if, if for, for folks who don't know was the first reliever to ever be honored with the MVP. And he was honored for it because he was a great story. And he was a great story because he was a guy who, he looked kind of just like some middle-aged suburban dad, right? And they tried him out, he was a little overweight, he had thick, you know, Coke bottle glasses, he had the buzz cut, I mean, he looked like a 1950s gym coach. That's what he looked like. And he was also a guy who he didn't make the majors until he was 27, and he didn't stick until he was like 31 or 32 years old. And so he's this old man coming out of the bullpen, and this is the Philadelphia whiz kids, right? Whiz, whiz kids, excuse me. Um, you mentioned Ashburn and others. You know, we had these 23, 24-year-old kids, and they, they stormed the league and took the pennant. And they, they were, I think, a worst-to-first situation. They were a terrible team. They finished 30 and 49, but before they okay. Um, they certainly weren't expected to yeah. contend for the pennant. And the voters decided to give it to the old man coming out of the bullpen. One, he, was, he threw slop, right? So saying, wait, Robin Roberts, who threw, could throw a ball through a brick wall, you know? Um, and you've, then you've got the reliever coming in from the, with his thick glasses again, and he's throwing nothing but curveballs, and he called it a palm ball, but it was essentially a changeup, and it, nothing but slop. He's getting guys out. And he pitched every day. I mean, really, and, and he was a true kind of uh, old school, three innings on Friday, four innings on Saturday. Oh, you need a day off Sunday? All right, just come in for one inning. You know, we'll freshen you <laughs> up. Um, look, he was a terrible choice for the MVP. Any reliever that ever won MVP is a terrible choice for MVP. Let's just say they, they, they should never be in consideration. Um, but I think because he was kind of a singularity, he was novel. He was new. He set records for appearances that season. Um, he may have set a record for relief innings. Oh, no, Mike Marshall. That would be Mike Marshall. Um, but uh, it was really just he was a fun story, and I think that's why he was named MVP. Robin Roberts was the, clearly the best player on that team and probably in the league that year. Okay. Thank you for the question. Uh, we, we have a couple. I think, sir, did you have a question before? You raised your hand a couple of times. I didn't want to. Yeah, I, I, uh, there's so many things that touched on, but, you know, the Ted Williams narrative, did you apply that to A-Rod, his rookie year, where the local writer in Seattle mm -hmm. voted A-Rod ninth best player, and that was the local writer, and it was a fact. I mean, yep. the Ted Williams thing, everyone knew that story, but A-Rod revived that story. Yep. And um, it's got to be the worst uh, call in, in my life. So a uh, just to paraphrase or, or summarize, the, the, the question was about the 1996 uh, AL MVP, uh, which was won by Juan Gonzalez, which is just terrible, just terrible, terrible, terrible vote. Uh, and A-Rod was, was famously snubbed. A-Rod almost made the chapter of most snubbed. As, as a matter of fact, uh, he was in an early draft. Um, but the truth is, I thought, well, you know, I want to stick with the the, uh, the 40s and 50s guys. A-Rod <laughs> I mean, has got three MVPs. He should probably have, no, he should certainly have five or six. And, and, and 1996 is clearly one of them. That, that's, 1996 is probably the worst uh, vote of the last 25 years, easily, easily. One of the worst of all time. So I agree with you completely. Um, I think there was some hand in the back, yeah. Uh, just sticking at A-Rod, though, like a lot of, I feel like this is a little bit unpopular. And, MVP ballot, but the uh, MVP ballot 2002, where A-Rod, again, uh, got snubbed by Miguel Tejada. And yeah. he wasn't bad that year. I think he had like 46 homers. He was a number of rising shortstop for the Oakland A's. But 
Why do you think he won it over A-Rod in that year in 2002? The only one reason is the A's were the better team. And uh, you're, that's a great example. So 2002, A-Rod was, I mean, he's at the, the absolute peak of his, of his yeah. powers. Um, I think was that the year he hit, he was with Texas that year. I think he had 57 home runs and 140. Um, and he was a gold glove. People forget this about him because toward the end of his career, he had bulked up and he had bad hips. But A-Rod was a legit elite defensive shortstop who could hit 50 home runs a year. Um, we'll never see his like again, no matter, no matter what you feel about the guy and all the other stuff. He was uh, just the best player probably in my lifetime, he and Bonds. But, but 2002 was, uh, it was the bias toward the winning team. Tejada drove in a ton of runs. Uh, he was an affable, popular guy. Um, wasn't half the player that A-Rod was. So A-Rod should have been named MVP that year. I think pitchers should absolutely be eligible for MVP. The ballot actually says all players are eligible, and they actually call out including pitchers. <laughs> and by the way, the idea of – so the Cy Young Award, which was introduced in 1956, that changed everything for the MVP. But prior to that, pitchers were routinely uh, named MVP. After that, they, they weren't. It dried up in the National League anyway, especially – but it was as early as 1924 or 1925 when the idea for an MVP for pitchers was suggested. Um, it just never went anywhere because they thought, well, no, no, it, pitchers are a player, so let's, you know, let's make them eligible. Um, little did they know the can of worms that would open up later once the Cy Young Award was introduced. And, and uh, So, yeah, that, that's my position. Pitchers should absolutely be eligible. Sir? Yeah, I'm uh, in the interest of full disclosure. Uh, I've had a little bit of experience, and this is a great, this is a great discussion. But I have a little bit of experience in what we're talking about. Uh, and I think the, the, it's not the elephant in the room, but the discussion in the room, and especially with the, in the Mike Trout situation, is, is it MOP or is it MVP? Is it MOP or is it MVP? Uh, is it the best player or the most valuable player? So you separate that. And then you get, you, part, you made a good point, how do you define value? Some people might say, okay, I'm going to define the value about what this guy did for his team, how much worse would his team have been than the other guy's team been, whereas somebody else, and this actually brings up, it is a legitimate point from the kind of standing thing, is what would have happened to this team if this guy had not done what he did? And, and you could make the argument, I'm old enough, to, I, I don't go back that far, but I'm old enough to remember that. So, very glad to have. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing, sir, that you voted on the I awards. Voted in in oh, this is so great! Can we can we talk? Can we? <laughs> this is a, because because there are yeah no it's so wonderful that we have from Baltimore from Baltimore. Oh my gosh! So one, it's an honor. Thank you so much for being here. And two, yeah, I mean, I I, I definitely take the BBWAA to task a couple of times in the book. Just full disclosure. Um, but as a, as, a, as, a, as a governing body, not the individuals, not the fine gentlemen who, and men and women who make it up. I'm sure I made mistakes. Let me tell you something. You do one to ten, and I'm a big Mike Trout fan, yeah. but he's not the most valuable player. I have a question for you. Question for you, sir. Is there an MVP work? I'm not voting. I'm not, I no longer vote. Sure, sure. But you have. You have. So here is my question. I, I really find this Gosh, I wish I knew you while I was writing this book. Because <laughs> uh, I wrote to the BBW and they didn't respond. I wanted to, to ask their opinion on a couple of things. But 
uh, is there a vote, whether it's for MVP or the Cy Young or anything, that looking back in retrospect, you think, you know, I missed that one. Are there any votes that, or, or do you, yeah. any, anyone yeah. that you would, you would want to I mean, share? I, I know, I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus. Right. But I, and, and it was a, a ballot, as it turned out, it wouldn't have made any difference, but, uh, but in, the, uh, in the 87 vote, uh, in, in my mind, I thought Alan Trammell was a clear MVP. Okay. Uh, and Bill was a legitimate candidate, but, but Alan Trammell played shortstop, he played middle end, and had it. And the whole thing really was decided in the last week of the season. And yeah. I know of one vote that went in before that week was played, which is a mistake. But, but it wouldn't have changed. If, if it turned out, it, would, it was one, it was vote for Bill, it was close to Trammell. But it wouldn't. I went back and actually looked at that the day before I left, because it, it would not have changed. Sure, sure. Thank you so much. Yeah, it does, it does happen, and it's, you know, you bring up pictures, and, and I don't want to, this is too good a comment. That's why I stayed out of it. I, <laughs> I just want to listen. No, I love hearing you know, the inside perspective. It, it's, it, as a voter, it's hard. I mean, when, when I looked at some of the, I went back and looked at some of the, the MVP things that I had interest in, and there were some pictures way, if you go by awards, pictures way down the list, but their, their war is so much better, and in my mind, I can't go there. I mean, it's hard to do that. And okay. It's hard. It's hard. The relief pitcher thing, as, as a voter, I mean, look, we just had a guy with 47 for 47 with a sub one ERA. Mm -hmm. And to me, he's more of an MVP candidate than he's a Cy Young candidate. I don't know. That might not make any sense to anybody in this room, but, but that's kind of <coughs> the 60 plus innings to 200 innings is hard. Yeah, yeah. Now, okay, so. Not, I, I'm, I'm done. I, 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 oh, no, I, I thank you so much. I, I, but really, relief? No, I, that's, <laughs> uh, I, I think that's fascinating, and, and, I, and I hope we were able to pick some of it up on there, because I, so. I thought that was really wonderful. But I will, pictures in the MVP. Now, there's one, there's a chapter in the book about 1985. We're in New York. 1985, I think most people automatically associate that with a, with a special young pitcher, you know, it's a 20-year-old kid who had Dwight Gooden, for those who are, if I'm keeping anyone in suspense, I can't <laughs> imagine I am. Dwight Gooden, that year, he didn't just have the best pitching season of that decade. Uh, he had arguably the best season of any player um, since Babe Ruth. If you look at war, for example, and, and war isn't everything. It is not, it is absolutely not. War is... I think it's a it's a it's an earnest statistic. It's a it's a nice attempt to kind of boil down the sum total of a player's contributions into a nice, easy to you know scale one to ten. Dwight Gooden, his total WAR, including his his hitting that year and, and base running, was thirteen point three. Now to put that in perspective, um, the last player to exceed that, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, was Babe Ruth in I think nineteen twenty three. Okay, so Barry Bonds never did it. Willie Mays never did it. Mickey Mantle never did it. Ted Williams never did it. Um, Carl Yastrzemski in his Triple Crown year didn't do it. And probably no one's ever going to do it. Um, the game is just too hard today for anyone to really stand out that much. Dwight Gooden came in fourth that year in the MVP uh, ballots. And behind, you know, luminaries, uh, Willie McGee won the award that year because he won the batting title. So that's kind of old school. In the old days, batting title meant a lot. Um, the Cardinals won that year. They, they, they took the NL pennant. Um, Dwight Gooden was twice the player Willie McGee was. Pedro Guerrero got more votes than, than Dwight Gooden. So it, I, I, I take exception to that one. One, because I'm a New Yorker and I've, I, and I've got the... But two, it, I just don't see the logical argument against a Dwight Gooden in 1985, or Pedro Martinez in 1999 or 2000, and, and lots of other, especially when they're giving, uh, they're giving MVPs to relievers, but they're not giving it to Dwight Gooden or Greg Maddox and uh, Randy Johnson, pitchers like that. So that's where um, I find the, the uh, perspectives very interesting, um, for what it's worth. Sure, no, I, I mean, <laughs> Here's the, here, here, the only, only difference I can say is in the Cy Young, you're talking innings, and the relief pitcher can look at games. Mm. So relief pitchers impact more games. Yeah. You know, they, in other words, they, they might impact as many games as, as an everyday as an everyday player. Whereas 32 starts a year, 35 starts a year, as opposed to 70 appearances a year, 
you know, again, value. Sure, no, and, and don't have, you know, high leverage situations, and sure, sure. You know, no, I, I think it's a valid, absolutely, um, yeah. and, and if the microphone, oh, we'll, we have some other, yeah. in the interest of, thank you, by the way, I really appreciate it. Anyone who uh, has not asked a question yet who wants to? Yes. Sure, the Yankee cap in the I back. I just want to throw this out, I don't, we don't need to discuss it, but you mentioned 1996, I think Mariano Rivera was the MVP in 1996, and that's a reliever, but I also want to just throw out Mickey Cochran in 1934, he had two home runs and 75 RBIs, yeah. Lou Gehrig. Uh, it, was, it was a very weird, weird So, story. two things. Yeah, Mariano, if you're going to give it to a reliever, you want to give it to Mariano in 96. But <laughs> so the, so when I'll make the one exception for that. <laughs> yeah. uh, talked about the 1934 vote, and I thought the 1934 vote was very interesting, and that's in the book as well. Um, because it's, it's really, it was a vote... Uh, Lou Gehrig won the Triple Crown that year, won. He, he earned the Triple Crown that year. He hit for the Triple Crown that year. And you're right, Mickey Cochran had two home runs. Lou Gehrig had 49, right, to give you an example. Um, and Lou Gehrig, despite winning the Triple Crown, and he won it in bruising fashion. He didn't just win the Triple Crown. He kind of, like, just lapped the field in most categories. Um, came in fifth in the vote. And that was perplexing to me, okay? Okay, second, maybe, but fifth? Really? And Lou Gehrig was beloved. Lou Gehrig, this was not a question of the writers snubbing him because they didn't like him. Everyone liked Lou Gehrig. It's like, you know, not liking chocolate milk. Like, Lou Gehrig's <laughs> Lou Gehrig. And did a little digging, and Cochran, it was another storyline vote. Cochran was named 1934 MVP, despite his somewhat modest contributions uh, in the field, uh, because he was, he was brought over, he was sold the season prior by Connie Mack, who was dismantling his, his athletics dynasty, the remnants of the dynasty. And Mickey Cochran was already established as one of the biggest stars in baseball and, and was you know, probably already recognized as one of the two or three great catchers to that time and who had ever played. And he was brought in to be player manager for Detroit. Now Detroit had been a terrible team for five or six years prior to that. They finished an average of like 33 games out of first place. Cochran comes in, you know, look, they're not expecting Detroit to win the pennant, but they figure, okay, Mickey Cochran, he's going to sell some tickets and he'll make the team a little bit better. Well, they storm the league and they take the pennant. And Mickey Co and they get to the World Series and they lose the World Series to the Gas House Gang uh, uh, Cardinals. Um, but Cochran got all the credit for this. Um, whether he deserved it or not can be argued because, you know, they had Hank Greenberg and they had Charlie Geringer and they had, you know, they just, they had this amazing lineup that just coalesced at the right time and, and, and uh, they won a lot of games. Cochran was the right guy at the right time. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an understandable vote, but it's an inexplicable vote, if that makes sense. I don't know. It's, I still, <laughs> it, it boggles my mind, so I, I'm with you on that. Would there, was there another question? Oh. Yeah, now going forwards. So this is starting this year. So we have Mookie Betts, right? And Jose Altuve and Mike Trout. And two of those three guys played on teams that didn't make the playoffs. And one of them on a team that was absolutely awful. Okay. So are we seeing a change here now where you don't have to be on a playoff team? <coughs> Josh Donaldson can make that argument that, you know, talking about getting jobs here. Now, um, I don't know that definition. And also then, extrapolate that argument out to say you actually have a better chance of winning the MVP once you accept that a guy from a losing team can get it if you're on the worst team possible surrounded by the worst guys. There's nobody competing with Trout on that team, not even close, but Mookie Betts has Pedroia and he had Ortiz and all these other guys who are right up there with him. It'd be very interesting to see how this works out and what this augurs going forward. I think that's a really, so in, in case the, you couldn't hear it uh, up in the front, um, it's the argument uh, about how, how kind of you define value. And is a player, so uh, the example that was used was Mike Trout, um, who was good for 10 and a half wins to the Angels this year. Um, Mookie Betts has also had a wonderful year, and Mookie Betts will probably be named MVP, and he'll make a fine choice. Uh, was worth about nine and a half wins to the Boston Red Sox. The Red Sox made the playoffs. The Angels were terrible. I don't know what their final record was, but they were a terrible team. <laughs> so is the question, as a percentage of value, in other words, if Mike Trout is worth ten and a half wins to a team that won 70 games, 
And Mookie Betts is worth nine and a half wins to a team that won 90 something games. Um, who actually is providing more value to their team, regardless of, of where that team ended up? Um, I do think with the emphasis on advanced analysis, so to speak, statistical analysis, doesn't mean advanced knowledge of the game, but, but advanced statistical analysis, I do think you're going to see many more votes like this. I happen to think they're going to give it to Betts because the Red Sox, well, one, he was a wonderful player, but two, the, because the Red Sox were a, a much more successful team than the Angels. And I don't, Altuve uh, kind of surprised me. I think he's just a feel-good story. Wonderful player, had a wonderful year. Uh, I don't think he's in the class of Mike Trout or Mookie Betts. Um, so if he wins the MVP, I'd be shocked. But, you know, look, the whole book is about shocking MVP. Books, so I don't know. <laughs> Well, on that, we're uh, actually, John, you're going to be our last question due to time constraints. Tell us a little bit about who's doing the voting. Who's doing the voting? Well, we have a former voter in the room, so I'm, I'm going to be. And how does somebody become a voter? You'd have to ask that gentleman that. But I believe it's, you need to be part of the uh, Baseball Writers Association of America for, for 10 years, is it? That, that's the Hall of Fame. Oh, that's the Hall of Fame. There's, so. there's two votes in every, every city. Yes. I do vote occasionally. They might, if they need somebody, but I might go to the manager here and look at that. Stay away from the other stuff. But they're qualified, and and it's and it's more and more. It's following what you're saying. It's not always, you know, I'm, I'm more old school than, than you. Yeah, school sure. Because uh, I value first place more than I value third place. But but third place also gets you into the postseason, and the postseason now brings that into, into play too. So that that's yeah. two people from each. Two, two, each two city, two, where each a team city, each city, and each league. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter how big the. the no, no, no. It's a very weird. <coughs> it always has been. Always has been. That's a misunderstood thing by a lot of people. They, they always thought that New York had twelve votes. Right. New York has two votes. Wow. Boston has two votes. Two and the other. Yeah. And so why would you want to keep it that small? Would you see that would lead to unusual voting? And it has. There's a lot to be said for that. Well, number one, you stay with your more experienced guys. You stay with, <clears throat> first of all, one of the criteria for Hall of Fame voting is you, you have to see, or, or for official scoring, which I still do now, but you had to see 100 games a year for three years in a row even just to be under consideration for those, those kind of things. So, so that the reason that they were limited to two, there's not that many people that travel anymore. And, you know, so... To see to see 150 games a year, if you're seeing 150 games a year, you're you're getting a pretty good grip. And plus, you're talking to people, and you know, to scouts and to other and to other coaches and and managers. And, and I, I will on the Gonzalez thing. I will tell you, that was not your your awful was not, awful. It was awful, but it was not universally accepted by many of people in the Texas organization. In other words, tech, the Texas organization did not think that he was the most valuable player? Is that where am I misunderstanding? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to go beyond that. All I'm going to say <laughs> is that, that, that A-Rod was not as universally accepted as the MVP as you might think, as we might think. And I'm not, I'm leaving this back. But sure. It wasn't, it wasn't quite as, as the numbers might have told me, I guess. And A-Rod was the best player I ever saw. Um, the first player, you know, he was at the age of 20. He, he and, and Griffey on the same team, two guys under 30, number one draft choices were probably, arguably, they were probably the two best draft choices ever played on one team. Well, I'll say this, and we, we'll finish up with this. If you weren't going to give it to A-Rod in 96, you should have given it to Griffey, who was just about Fair as good. Question. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, again, it's split vote, same team. You know, and, uh, split vote works into a lot of this conversation. Sure. Did you vote for Gonzalez? No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Actually, that was the first year I was out. Oh, okay. Well, I would like to thank Jim. First, Jim, can I say uh, your last name or just say it as Jim? Jim Henneman, a great writer, thank a you. legendary writer. So for those listening, that was Jim Henneman, straight from Baltimore. And um, 
It's been a fascinating discussion about a fascinating book. To those listening, you should pick this up uh, wherever you can. The name of the book, Baseball's Amazon. Most... Well, not Amazon. Somewhere other oh, Jay, than Amazon. Actually, pick it up at, at yeah. Jay's shop. Some little shop somewhere <laughs> in America. Uh, Dino Baseball Clubhouse is the exactly. best place don't, to Don't go to Amazon, up. but that's a whole other discussion. Uh, Baseball's Most Baffling MVP Ballots, the publisher McFarland, the author Jeremy Lerman. Thank you very much. Thank you.